You're listening to a message from Whitefields Community Church in Northern Colorado. For more information and audio content, visit us at whitefieldschurch.com. All right. Hello, everyone. My name is Luke, and I'm going to be speaking to you today. All right. Well, um, yeah, my name is Luke. Um, My wife and I have been going to this church for about a year and a half. I'm really excited to be looking at chapter four today. We're going to be going through the whole chapter. And so let's just plunge in. I'm going to start off by reading the whole thing. Romans chapter four. All right. And you guys can read along with me. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scriptures say? Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as its due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Is this blessing then only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? For we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? It was not after, but before he was circumcised. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised so that the righteousness would be counted to them as well. And to make him the father of the circumcised who are not merely circumcised but who also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. Yeah, a lot of circumcision there. Um, For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if it is the adherents of the law who are to be the heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. That is why it depends on faith, in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is father of us all. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations in the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. In hope, he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations. As he had been told, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead, since he was about a hundred years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith and he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the words that was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Uh, let's pray. Uh, God, thank you so much for your words today. And um, I do want to um, just think of the words of the song uh, that we sang and, and preach the gospel to myself and to everyone here. Um, just pray that your words would really come through and that the points that from this chapter that you really want uh, people to hear, that you would just speak them through me and that you'd speak to everyone individually just where we're at. In Jesus' name, amen. 
All right, so I had this friend a few years ago. Um, it's actually been quite a few years ago. And this friend really liked the idea of Christianity. She really liked the idea of, of being a Christian. And so we'd talk, um, and I, I was a Christian still, and so we would have conversations about uh, what Christianity meant and, and um, kind of where she was at with that. And she had two problems in accepting Christianity. So the first problem was a lot of nights, you know, yeah, whenever we'd be having these deep conversations about faith, she would would just like cry and break down and talk about her past and all the bad things that she'd done and, and she did have some pretty serious regrets and she'd feel like, you know, I don't I don't think God, you know, can use me. Why would God want to use me? Why how would God forgive me? And there was this huge obstacle um, to her accepting Christianity, accepting God's love and forgiveness. The second problem that she had, so on other days, we'd be talking about Christianity, and, and she would, would think, and I don't remember her exact words, but her, her attitude was, you know, I'm a pretty good person, actually. I, you know, I um, like people, people like me, I, you know, pay my taxes, I work hard, all the, the bad things, those are kind of in the past, don't really have any regrets at that moment. And so her feeling pretty good about herself was this obstacle to her accepting accepting Christianity. So as you can tell, those those two problems are very contradictory. They're kind of on opposite ends of the spectrum. Um, and they are on opposite ends of the spectrum. So I was thinking that a lot of us, and I, I've thought of her story a lot since, since we were friends and just how, wow, that actually really is, is where I fall back to all the time um, into this contradictory state of going back and forth between thinking, oh man, I just, I don't think God can really use me. I don't think God really wants anything to do with me. And then on other days, just kind of going about my business, feeling like I'm doing a pretty good job and, and not really seeking him, not really seeking his help. So I thought of this, I thought of, of making this or finding something like this and bringing it, but I'm too lazy for that. So um, if you picture, if you picture like a board and it's got a groove through the middle of it and I put a, a marble um, in the middle of this board. And, and on this side of the board, it says sin and rebellion. And then on this side, it says uh, morality and works. So if I put the marble in the middle and I lean the board over and it goes over to this side, that's a sinful marble, right? So it's, it's on this, this side of the spectrum. And then if I turn it over to this side, it goes um, into this, this works and morality side of the spectrum. So these are on opposite ends of the spectrum, works and then rebellion, but they're in the same spectrum, right? The marble is in the same rut. And I was thinking of this and, and how we are often in this rut, going back and forth between the two. I mean, if you don't think that you have those kind of contradictory going back and forth in your own life, you probably should look a little closer at your own life. I'm not trying to be judgmental. Just to give you an example from my life, just a real kind of simple example, maybe you can relate to this one. So when I'm driving, when I'm stuck in traffic, I will often just really have this righteous indignation about, you know, that person just like going super fast past me or this person cutting someone off and I'm just like, I, I get upset and it's not, not a good thing at all. But then what makes it even worse is that I'll find myself doing the exact same thing, maybe even in the same drive. And my wife can attest 
to at least that that part of it. So, and then it's it's crazy, and it's kind of a funny example in a way, but it's really not funny. It's it's crazy how, you know, one minute we're so confident in ourselves, and the next minute we're failing. So last week in Romans we reached kind of a turning point because basically we have been talking about what I, what I'm just now talking about, which is first, you know, in Romans one talking about um, our sin and our depravity and how that has separated us from God, and then as we went on we we learned how self-righteousness and following the law and all those things also separate us from God. Well, all of those things, again, those lie on this spectrum. So last week we reached this turning point where in Romans 3, 2 it says, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. And Nick talked about this kind of epic, but now. Um, because this changes everything. That was the, the title of his sermon. Um, so I'm specifically today going to be looking at this last phrase, apart from the law. We're going to be talking about a, a faith relationship uh, and what that means and how that works. This faith relationship is not on the spectrum. It's not a degree um, either on the, the sin side or the work side. It's not somewhere in here. Um, it's a completely different system. So this is great news both for Christians and for non-Christians, um, whether you think that, you know, I just don't have what it takes, I'm not a really very good person, I don't think I make a very good Christian, you know, or if you're a Christian and you feel like I don't make a very good Christian, <laughs> this is great news for us. So we're going to be looking at the life of Abraham, um, as we just read through that, that big chunk. So um, we're going to be looking at three points as we look through the text. The first point is how a faith relationship is superior to mere religion. Secondly, how a faith relationship is superior to symbols and rites. And last, how a faith relationship justifies us before God. All right, so let's dive right into those. As we do go in, into these, definitely notice how as these different problems come up of, of sin and self-righteousness, the solution doesn't come through us and, and our overcoming something. Uh, the solution comes through God's work. So we definitely are going to keep coming back to that. All right. First, how a faith relationship is superior to mere religion. All right. In verse four of our chapter, Paul says, now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but his due. I like to think of this as a cause and effect system. And this is a system we're very familiar with. It's a system that we live in every day. And it's just, it's part of our mindset. It's a system of earning and deserving. So to just explain that a little more, um, if we have a nice house, if we have a good job, if we get good grades, if we, if we have a, a master's degree or a doctorate degree, we're, we're proud of those things because we've earned them. And if, you know, when, in general, when good things in our life happen, we feel like, you know, I've earned this. If, if I have a good relationship with my, with my spouse, you know, well, I've earned that. I've, I found the right person and I, you know, earned their affection and all those things. So when good things happen, we've earned them. Along the same lines of this cause and effect system, we believe in justice. And so if someone does something bad to someone else, well, they deserve, they deserve to be punished. We also like the idea of karma. If I'm in traffic and someone cuts me off, I can take solace in the fact that they're probably going to get into an accident down the road, right? <clears throat> so it's a great system. And um, in verses 1 through 2 of our chapter, what then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about. In other words, Abraham would have scored a lot of points with the universe or with God. So Abraham was, was a good guy. He was doing good in this, in this cause and effect system. 
system, he, he'd earned a lot. So even religion falls into, um, into this category. As we talked about recently, all major religions, apart from Christianity, have this system of, of earning. Right, you have to earn points with the universe or with God. You have to, you know, earn a good place for the afterlife or the next life. It's all about you and what and what you earn. So there's a beautiful kind of completeness to this system, right? It's a pretty good system. Like we believe in justice and we believe in hard work and all those things. It's it's not a bad system. Well, there are certain limitations to this system. So the first one, I, w- I just want to look at a few here. So the first one would be you have to take the bad with the good. So if um, a lot of good things happen to me in my life and I believe, well, I've earned those things. I deserve those things. Well, the same is true the other way around. So if I have a crappy life, if someone leaves me, someone divorces me, if I you know, was abused, um, if I struggle with depression, um, if I struggle with a chronic illness, well, I must deserve those things as well, right? So the cause and effect system is rather merciless. I find it interesting that the same people that tend to reject Christianity for its being harsh and judgmental um, are the same people that uh, believe in mother nature and karma. And mother nature is completely merciless, right? So if if you go on a hike through the mountains um, in Colorado um, this winter and you you don't wear a coat, you're probably going to die. That's how benevolent mother nature is, right? And, you know, same thing with karma. Karma is completely unforgiving. So, again, these are all fall within this cause and effect system. And, and then we get to talking about a all-holy God. Um, and the problem then with, with earning there is that it's not enough. And that's what we've been talking about in Romans is even all the good things that we do are not enough. And, lastly, all the good things that we do often build up in us self-righteousness and pride. And those often distance us from God even more than our sin does. So, a lot of limitations uh, with this system. So a true relationship with God, this faith relationship, lies outside, as I said before, outside of the spectrum of works and, you know, works and and sin and our efforts. Um, And this is great news because religion is really hard. Religion is ultimately frustrating, human religion, outside of this relationship with God. Karl Marx said, religion is the sigh of the oppressed creature, the heart of the heartless world, the soul of soulless conditions. It is the opium of the people. Now, we Christians tend to kind of hate that, that quote, and um, you know, it's kind of offensive to our faith, and I'm not a Marx fan, trust me. But this quote is really interesting. It's actually very true. Apart from our faith relationship with God, religion is heartless, and it is soulless. All right, so what's the solution? I'm going to go to a different book. So in Hebrews 4, it says, So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works, as God did from his. I just thought that was a really cool picture that, um, you know, as we talk about religion and works being so hard, God talks about this, this rest. Like, we don't even have to work. We can just rest from those. Just don't worry about it. Just rest in God's work, right? So to the one who does not, and this is from our chapter, to the one who does not work but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Right, so again, this is this new spectrum. So we're going to look at faith in a couple different ways here. First, just a simple definition. How do we have faith? So Hebrews 11.6 says, And without faith it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. 
All right, so a lot of us are familiar with that first part, like without faith, it's impossible to please God. But a lot of us, like I, I didn't even remember the second part where it says, it kind of defines faith. It says, whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. And so there's two parts to faith, kind of two ingredients in this. The first is believing that God exists. The second is that he, that believing that God has our best interest in mind. These may sound really basic, especially the first one, believing that God exists. They're both actually really, really hard and really important. So when you think about it, believing in the unseen over the seen, that's incredibly hard for us living in a physical world. It's much easier to trust the seen. And to just daily be trusting in the unseen over the seen, that's incredibly hard. So we need to acknowledge that. Uh, the second part, just believing that he, that God has our best interest in mind. Again, we live in a cause and effect world where if <laughs> something, if I do something good, I get something good. If I have nice things, I've earned those. But uh, and you know, if bad things happen to me, I've I've deserved those things as well. But God says, like we sang in the last song, He works all things together for good. That means that even the bad things that happen in our lives, He works those together for good. You know, what a crazy thought. This is totally outside of this cause and effect system. This is a system where we trust God even completely beyond our understanding, completely beyond what makes sense. We trust God and he works things together for good. He, even the bad things that come into our life, um, it says we'll strengthen our faith and build character. So uh, Bonhoeffer said that God does not give us everything we want, but he does fulfill his promises, leading us along the best and straightest paths to himself. All right, so this is, there's some bad news, some good news, and some great news in this. All this about faith. The bad news is that we cannot earn God's favor. Right? The good news is we don't have to earn God's favor. The great news is that not only do we not have to earn God's favor, but he's going to be working for our benefit as we trust him. That's amazing. And as I was thinking through this, I was thinking, you know, this only works if you're humble. And the bad news isn't even bad news if you've come to the end of yourselves. If you realized already how far your sin has separated you from God, this bad news that you can't earn God's favor is actually, you go, you skip right to the good news, right? And so this takes great humility to believe in the unseen over the seen, to believe that it's not your work that matter, but your works that matter, but what God does that matters, um, that God justifies you. This takes extreme humility. First Peter 5, 6 says, humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God so that at the proper time he will exalt you. And then it ends this little section with this quote from Psalms where David says, that blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven. I love that because it doesn't say blessed are those who never sin, right? It says blessed are those who, like, we, usually, we usually think that, you know, blessed is the man who does this and does this and does this. This just says blessed is he whose, you know, sins are forgiven. So that's nothing that we do. That's nothing that David does. That's something that God does. And so it's, it's his work, not ours. As I said, I keep coming back to that. Second point, faith, is, uh, faith relationship is superior to symbols and rites and rituals. This is the one that this section is just filled with circumcision. So we're just going to fly through it. Um, it's actually just a shorter section. Okay, so first we're talking about religion and now and, and how our religion can't earn God's favor, right? So now we're going to go to how this, this symbol of circumcision couldn't earn God's favor either. It wasn't about that. Circumcision for the Jewish people was a symbol of faithfulness, almost like a wedding ring. 
And uh, Paul's actually continuing something that he's, he was talking about in Romans 3. Um, so Romans 3, 2 through 4, what is the value of circumcision? Much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. What if some were unfaithful? Does their faithfulness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar. So this symbol of faithfulness, obviously it has nothing to do with the people's faithfulness. <laughs> let every man be a liar. You know, let be, God be true, though everyone were a liar. So circumcision is about God's faithfulness, not ours. So in this chapter, um, Paul takes it even a step further. So not only is circumcision this symbol that represents God's faithfulness, but God wanted, faith, God wanted a faith relationship with his people before circumcision was even put into place. So in verse 11 of, of our chapter four, it says, he received, he, Abraham, received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised so that righteousness would be counted to them as well. When uh, did God credit Abraham as righteous? Was it before he was circumcised or after? Before. It was before, um, which is just this awesome fact that God's always wanted this close faith relationship with his people. It, it wasn't about rituals and, and laws. Th those came in for a reason, but God has always wanted this close relationship with his people. I also love in this verse how it says, the purpose was to make him the father of all who believe, of all who believe, without being circumcised so the righteousness would be counted to them as well. In other words, God wanted a faith relationship with all of these people, not just Abraham. Um, even as circumcision came in as a symbol of God's faithfulness, he still wanted to have a close relationship with all of the Israelites. That was always his intention. All right, this has always been what God has wanted to be close to us. We need to note then, we're moving on to talk about the law next, um, that it's our rebellion that's created a distance uh, between us and God. So our third point is how a faith relationship justifies us before God. So it's kind of it was interesting to me to notice God does or Paul doesn't even mention the law um, until this last chunk, and so he he specifically wanted to address each of these issues separately. First, um, just just general religion and and effort, and I, I think it's kind of a zoomed out view. And then he goes to the um, the example of circumcision, and then he's now zooming in to talking specifically about the law. So faith is outside of this cause and effect system of the law, right? We know it's outside of this cause and effect system, and now, you know, specifically the cause and effect system of the law of Moses. So verses 13 through 16 of our chapter say, For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if it is the adherents of the law who are to be the heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. So we see here that without faith, there's no relationship with God. Like God wanted his people to, to trust him and believe his promises. But if they're just following a law and not looking to God and not, you know, and, you know, trying with their own efforts to, to fulfill this law, but not relating to God, that there's no relationship there. And ultimately there's no pleasing God. 
So it talks about no transgression apart from the law. This is kind of a crazy statement. What helped me kind of wrap my mind around the place of the law here and this idea that there's no transgression outside of the law is to think about a child-parent relationship and how when a child is is young, very young, um, they're just completely dependent on their parents. I think of my nephew Jimmy, who's a, a year and a half now, and he's mischievous in some ways and <laughs> cries and, and uh, gets upset at the wrong times. But his relationship is this innocent relationship of trust with his parents right now. And I, I'm not saying he doesn't already have a sinful nature, but but that hasn't really come into full play. And right now, it's just, he's just walking with his parents. He's following them. He's, you know, he's, he's dependent on them. That's the key. And so I, I kind of want to talk about three kind of phases that we go through as, as children, and then I'm going to apply this to, to the actual law being implemented in the Bible. So um, there's this innocence phase, um, and then the law comes, and then there's intimacy is the final phase. Before I move on to those, it's interesting, Jesus talks a lot about having the attitude of a child when coming to God. So Matthew 18, two through four, says, and calling to him a child, he, Jesus, put him in the midst of them and said, truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. So notice again, he talks about humility, you know, to just come to the end of ourselves, to just be utterly humble and to just depend on him like a child. To take this illustration a little bit further, so then when we grow a little older and our sin nature starts to really show itself, parents have to institute certain rules and laws. So, um, and then as, as the child encounters these laws, they can react either by bucking against them and, you know, these minor little rebellions, or they can kind of accept the law and kind of trust the parent in that law. And of course, we know, or I don't know, but parents know that, you know, children are going to, are going to handle each law and each rule that you put up, each stance that you have, they're going to handle each one differently, they're going to buck up against some, and they're going to accept some. All right, and so there's kind of this, this relationship where the parent hasn't changed and the law that they're instituting is not a bad thing. But if the child rebels enough, there is a distance that's created. Like, let's say, you know, a parent has a stance that the child just, you know, will not go along with. They're going to completely distance. Well, okay, let's say, first I have to, uh, disclaimer, we're, we're assuming here that the parents are, are very good parents and raising the child in, in a really, you know, what we would consider a correct way. When they institute a law, um, that's for the child's own good. If the child pushes hard against that law, there's going to be a distance created. But the distance is going to be created by the child, by the rebellion, and not by the parent. And so finally, if all goes well in, in this child raising process, there's this time of intimacy after it's all over, whether that happens more at age 14 or age 25, or there's the discipline kind of goes into the background and the parent and the child can relate just a, as people again, just, you know, man to man, woman to woman. Yeah, so I kind of like that illustration. It kind of helps me see how the law works in the, in the Old Testament. It's one way to kind of understand it. It's an imperfect illustration uh, for one reason, uh, because God is way, way holier than any human parent, and our rebellion runs far deeper. 
So um, we're going to look at the biblical kind of, uh, we're going to move on from that and look at how the Bible story is kind of similar to that, but there are differences. God used to have this intimate, close relationship with uh, like people like Adam and Noah and Abraham. They walked with God, right? God spoke directly to them. So it's kind of this time of, of innocence. Then the law came in, as I said before, because of our rebellion. Galatians actually says that it's because of our rebellion. And then this rebellion just just is messy and just continues basically through the whole Old Testament. And I was, I was thinking through this, and it's like rebellion sees only the law. It doesn't see the loving person behind the law. Um, and so things get worse and worse and worse. And so then did the people just kind of come around and grow out of the rebellion after a while? No, they didn't. So um, it, this is a, a big difference from my illustration of, of childhood. So the people didn't grow out of the rebellion. They completely turned their backs on the Lord. And so Jesus had to actually come and, and die for us. And that's how we achieve intimacy with God. It uh, wasn't anything that we did. I love the picture that Isaiah 59 paints of this. So I'm going to read just a few verses from Isaiah 59. It says, Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, or his ear dull that it cannot hear. So the problem's not with God. But your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. I find this really interesting, and well, I'm going to read verse 13 too, so it says that we were transgressing and denying the Lord and turning back from following our God. You know, it wasn't that, oh, you've done one too many sins, so I can't, I can't save you, I can't do anything about it. No, it starts off by saying that his hand is not so short that it cannot save. But the problem is that they're denying God. The problem is they're turning back from following him. So if they're not following him, if they're not walking with him, he can't intervene. And if you're not reaching out to him to save you, then he can't save you. Us walking with God, a faith relationship with God, just relying on him, that allows him to intervene in our lives and to, to work in us, right? Because he does the work. And so it, it was the people's completely turning their backs on God that separated them, right? That separated them from God. But then comes the cool part. So in verses 15 through 16, it says, The Lord saw it, and it displeased him. This is after going through a whole bunch of sin and depravity. And it displeased him that there was no justice. He saw that there was no man and wondered that there was no one to intercede. Then his own arm brought him salvation, and his righteousness upheld him. All right, so the law had to be upheld. The law was this good thing. It spoke of God's character. It, it is a picture of holiness. It had to be upheld because God's a holy God. Um, he can't even look on sin. And so Jesus came and he upheld it for us. In Romans 8, it says, For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh, again, that's our rebellion, could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh, he condemns sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. So what was our definition um, of faith before? It was believing that God exists and believing that he has our best interest in mind. Well, when Jesus came, Jesus came in human form to show us that God exists. We can see him and touch him now. And what better display of showing that God has our best interest in mind than dying for us? So Jesus is, adds so much to our faith, right? Having Jesus and knowing what he did and knowing how he shows God's mercy and God's character, we can now have faith and trust in that and trust in the work that he can do in us. So what does faith look like? 
in Romans 3, you're going to think that I, I like Romans 3 more than Romans 4 because I keep going back there, but um, there's some key passages. So in Romans 3, 27 through 28, it says, then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of works? By a law of works? No, but by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from the works of, law, of the law. There's a huge distinction here, and I think it's really easy to just kind of think of, you know, the things that you do out of faith and the things that you do to try to follow the law. Well, they're all kind of the same. They're, they're all kind of like, am I splitting hairs here, um, or is Paul splitting hairs here to make this distinction? Let's look at some examples and we'll, um, just to see what works of faith look like, to see what a life of faith looks like. Um, in Hebrews 11, uh, we call this our hall of faith, where it talks about all these great people of faith and, and what they did. Um, and just real quick to mention a, just a few. Um, so it, it talks about Noah and how he built the ark and Moses keeping the Passover, Rahab hiding the spies. Um, what do all these works and all the other ones in the whole chapter are, are the same, go along with this as well. What do they all have in common? What does Noah building the ark and Rahab hiding the spies and Moses keeping the Passover, what do these things have in common? Well, they're not in the law. These are unique things that God has given these people to do. These are people that heard God and trusted him and did what God said. This is completely different from following a list of rules, which you can do completely aside from God. You can be off here in your own little world just trying to keep all the rules. And, and God's like, you know, I just, I want to have a relationship with you. I want you to hear what I'm telling you specifically. And I want you to trust me. Or think of it the other way around. What if Noah had been a really righteous man and the Bible says he was, but he never built the ark? Right? Or what if Rahab was a super devout, righteous woman? Well, she wasn't. She was a prostitute, um, but never hid the spies. And so you see these two people on the opposite ends of the righteousness and, and sin spectrum, both pleasing God through their faith. Now, that makes it sound kind of straightforward, but this is a struggle for us as we try to determine, you know, what God wants for us. And, and as we do try to love his law and follow it, I, I think it's a daily struggle. And so I, I think the key is trying to please God and not just appease him, right? So um, as we walk with him, as we trust him, as we have faith, that pleases God. It says that faith is what pleases God. Um, as we just try to fulfill works and try to cross off a list of rules, that's just trying to kind of stay under his radar almost, right? I'm, I'm, it's okay, I'm a good person. I'm, I'm, you know, keeping up. I'm doing well on my own. So as, as I was thinking about this, I was thinking, you know, the life of faith, um, there's some terms that really, that really kind of um, give that life. So we, we talk about abiding in Christ, or walking in the Spirit, following God. And I specifically like the, the terms walking and waiting because I was, I've been reading through the Psalms a lot and I've noticed that there's a lot of, of walking and waiting and how this relates to a faith relationship. So in Psalms... You know, there's a lot of wait for the Lord, take courage, wait for the Lord, walk before God in the light of life. Um, Isaiah talks about mounting up on wings like eagles, running and not, not being weary when we trust in God. And so this progression with God that, um, you know, it's not just about having this wishful thinking kind of faith where we're like, I really want this to happen. And so I'm going to have faith that it happens, you know, it's, it's not that at all. It's this movement is walking and abiding and dwelling with God that takes our attention, that takes trusting him constantly when things come up, when we really want to do something that we think we shouldn't do, we wait on him. Right. And so there's this, it's this very active thing. And so I'm going to sum up here really quick. 
and just you know um, when when Abraham talks about uh, when it talks about Abraham believing even though he was old and Sarah was barren you know this is this faith beyond this cause and effect system again you know where the cause and effect system the physical world says you know if you're this old you can't have kids if you're barren you can't have kids right that's just how things work but he had faith beyond his understanding it says in hope he believed against hope in other words he believed beyond what he could even understand to a God that can make possible even what's impossible and that's what we do. That's how we have faith in, you know, the resurrection or the virgin birth. We're believing in things that are physically impossible, but we know that God can do the impossible. So we close with, that is why his faith, Abraham's faith, was counted to him as righteousness. But the words that was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted us to, to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. So his hand is not too short to save. If you feel that you're not good enough or that you're struggling, you've wandered too far, just remember that the door is always open um, and that he always wants you back. He always wants to have this, this close relationship with you. Well, let's pray. God, thank you for um, just speaking through your word and um, just thank you for just what you've taught me and uh, studying this chapter. And um, I just pray that you would um, help us to keep struggling and keep praying and talking to you about about what you want for us and how to trust you and and I mean that's the best way to to get out of this this system this spectrum where it's about us and our earning is just to just to talk to you and trust you and think about what you actually want from our lives and as we do that, we know that the, the sins and things we struggle against, you'll help us walk through those. You'll help us, you'll help us keep your law as we trust you and as we have faith in you. So we thank you for that. In Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to a message from Whitefields Community Church in Northern Colorado. For more information and audio content, visit us at whitefieldschurch.com.